Hey, thanks, Ricky. Okay. Amen. I, I uh, was enlightened uh, last service that they call what you did there a sp- spoken word. I don't know if it was a rap or what, what poem or a spoken word. And that, that was excellent. Wasn't that excellent? I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Roger. Beautiful. And please, uh, uh, you know, be open to God giving you that gentle nudge that we've been talking about the last couple months in this series on the will of God. If there's a nudge that you feel of any sort, be open to this regarding that ministry, Echo Ministries. It's powerful. We're making disciples out of kids. And uh, we just need some, some adults who will participate in this. And, and we do all the training and all of that. But we really do need people to step up. So please consider that. And uh, like Ricky said, if you want more information about that, stop by at the Hub and talk to them. So good to see you all here this morning, amen, and to be in the presence of God and to be with other people and worshiping God and the power of God is here and it's, this is, this is a, a good thing. Um, I uh, did not cut myself shaving in case you're wondering why I have a band-aid here. This is not, you know, I uh, pop out these growths at a fairly regular rate and they've got a new technique now. I used to have to get them cut out, which is why I got all these scars all over. But they've developed a new sort of technology where they're squirting uh, chemotherapy into the into the growth. And uh, it's cool because it just shrivels them up and they go away and I don't get all these scars. It's wonderful. But when they first get the shot, uh, when the, the growth first gets shot, it, it, it gets red and boily and pussy and gross. I got one on Friday and I'm thinking, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. That'd, that'd be, this is better. I got one in my hand too. So there you go. That's why I got the band-aid. Uh, by next week, it should just be a little tiny zit. All right. That'd be much better. So we're... Uh, Oh, uh, and remember, as we're going through this message, if uh, questions arise to you, we had some really good ones last service, but I'm thinking this service is probably even smarter than the last service, right? So, so uh, text in those questions uh, that, that arise. We get to, I'll try to get to uh, as many as possible at the end of this message if I don't get too long-winded. So that's the number you text in, but remember to keep your phones silent uh, as you're doing that. We're in Colossians. And we're going to do something this morning that we haven't done for a couple of months, and that is move on to another verse. <laughs> we've, we've completed this series on uh, God's will hunting. And so now we're moving on, and uh, I'm entitling this message, Out of the Darkness. Because, in fact, it's going to be about coming out of the darkness. Uh, and it's based on verses 12 through 14. I'm kind of jumping in here in the middle of a sentence with Paul, so it's a little bit odd. Um, but to go to the beginning of that sentence, I'd have to go back to verse 9. And you've already heard those verses 17 times. So we're going to jump in the middle of a sentence here uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, out of the darkness. Paul says, giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you. Look at that word. We'll come to it later on. Qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, praise God. And brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In whom? In the Son. We have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, uh, we just pray that your presence would land on this time. For everybody who may be tuning in through podcasts or through television, God, we just pray you bless them and open up their minds and hearts, whatever they're doing right now. God, just grab their hearts to receive this word. And everybody in this auditorium, we just pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be permeating every pore of our being to, to give this word kingdom authority. I can't do that. Words can't do that. Speeches can't do that. But you can do that. And so, Lord, just use this word to build your kingdom, to enlighten us, to open our eyes, 
to deepen our appreciation uh, over what you've done for us, to see your beauty in a deeper way and to be transformed by that. We surrender this to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Okay, so this message is really divided into two very distinct parts. Uh, There's the good news and then the bad news. And uh, I figure you want to hear the the bad news first, because then we'll get to the good news. As a matter of fact, you can't really appreciate the good news unless you first appreciate how bad the bad news is. In fact, the good news, if you understand it rightly, is the best news you could ever imagine. But you can only see the beauty of the good news if you realize the ugliness of the bad news. So we'll deal with the bad news first. It's very depressing, uh, but we'll uh, hang, on, hang on because we'll, we'll redeem it uh, towards the end, all right? So here's the bad news. Paul says that we were under the, and the whole world is under this dominion of darkness. This dominion of darkness. Kingdom of darkness. When he refers to the kingdom of darkness, what he has in mind, if you understand this in his first century context, is, is what he's referring to is this a hierarchy of angelic powers. Really, they're even higher than the angels. They're, they're called principalities and powers. And uh, in a first century context, these, these angelic, super angelic, archangel type beings were given authority over different areas of creation and society. You see this idea of the dominion of darkness fleshed out a little bit in more detail in Ephesians chapter 6. Here Paul says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Note that, if it's flesh and blood, that's not our struggle. That's, I think kingdom people are, are prohibited from ever fighting flesh and blood. If it's flesh and blood, if it's a human being, it's someone we're to be fighting for, not someone fighting against. And the way we fight for folks who are flesh and blood is by engaging in this warfare. It's a warfare against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We understand, when we understand this, this, this verse, this phraseology, and there's a lot of verses like this in the New Testament, we understand them in the first century context. It's clear that Paul is referring to different levels of these archangels, these principalities and powers. There's different names, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces, dark forces, and, and, and they're, they're all angelic beings who were given authority over aspects of creation and aspects of society but who are now using that authority at cross-purposes with God. They've rebelled against God. It's very much like us. We were, we're all given a domain of authority. We have say-so. How we live affects what comes to pass. We influence things. That's our, that's our kingdom, if you will. That's our say-so. That's our domain of authority. And God's will is that we'll use our say-so to come in line with his say-so, and, and that's how his say-so gets done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. When we bring our domain of authority under his domain of authority, his will is now being done. But we're free agents, and we can choose to go against that, and we often do. And when we rebel against God, our say-so now become, is used at cross-purposes with God. We carry out our own will, and maybe even demonic wills rather than God's will. Something like that is going on in the angelic realm with these principalities and powers. They were given tremendous say-so, authority. But now they're using that authority at cross-purposes with God. All of that is the, 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 the dominion of darkness that Paul's talking about. And from a New Testament perspective, uh, that dominion of darkness covers this entire earth. This world is caught in the crossfire of a cosmic warfare. There are destructive forces that are at work 
around this world to corrupt everything, to bring about an evil influence everywhere. This is part of the bad news. And we are ourselves uh, affected by that. We're, we're in bondage to that to, to different degrees. We're oppressed by that. The kind of authority that the New Testament ascribes to Satan and fallen forces is really surprising. It's really quite remarkable. John goes so far as to say that the entire world is controlled by the evil one, Satan. This world is in serious shape. This is the, the bad news. This is the bad news. Now, some folks have trouble believing that. Some folks, for some folks, this idea that the world is oppressed by demonic forces and, and that the world is this corrupt and all this kind of stuff, they, uh, they think that, that that's inconsistent with their view of divine sovereignty because they have a view of divine sovereignty that is control. And how can you have Satan controlling the entire world if God's supposed to be controlling the world? So they have trouble with that belief for that reason. There are others who don't believe this just because it's not a nice belief. They don't like to believe this. They want to be optimistic. They want to have more of a positive outlook on things. And we live in kind of a culture where, unfortunately, a lot of people think you can determine what is true by how much you like something. And so folks will say, and I've had folks say this, I don't like that belief, and so I don't think it's true. As though reality conforms to our wishes. It's just a bizarre sort of thing. And so they sort of ignore the teachings about the oppression of the principalities and powers. And then there are others who think that it's just impossible for modern people, as enlightened as we are, uh, as scientific as we are, to believe in the reality of Satan and, and principalities and powers and demons. That's, I've, I've read folks who have said, call that a, a medieval superstition. I've even known Christians, even evangelical Christians, who find it impossible to believe these things are real. They'll take them as mythic symbols of, of you know, maybe... Uh, evil in the human heart or evil that happens when people come together and you get a group think that, you know, you get kind of a crowd hysteria. They're, they're, they're in one way or another symbols. They're myths, but they're not real. They're not ontologically real. Even some Christians believe that. I've always found that belief to be kind of odd. Uh, for this reason, most of those folks believe in God. You believe in God, and God is a transcendent spiritual being. So if you can believe in God as a transcendent spiritual being, why is it so hard to believe that there are other transcendent spiritual beings, other beings in the heavenly realm? If you believe in an all-good, all-powerful spirit, why is it so hard, so irrational, so medieval to believe in, in less powerful, evil spiritual agents? It's certainly not that there's any evidence against them or, or anything like that. It's just a modern prejudice uh, that we think this is medieval superstition. I, I, for one, would have trouble, uh, confession time here, I, I'd have trouble believing in an all-powerful, all-good God if I didn't believe in the devil and in principalities and powers. Because as I look at this world, as I checked, it's fairly screwed up. <laughs> it's pretty screwed up. And not just screwed up because of what humans have done, but it's it screwed up in other ways. I'm talking about natural disasters and diseases and parasites and all these other things that afflict humanity. If I didn't believe in a devil and in spiritual forces that are corrupting nature and, that, and bring about situations like this, I'd have to attribute all of that to God, which a lot of people do. In fact, in our insurance policies, it still refers to acts of God. Every disaster is an act of God. But see, it seems to me that that makes it a little bit harder to believe in the all-powerful goodness of God uh, if he's out there tweaking all the hurricanes and disasters and, and things of that sort. So to me, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense to accept the New Testament's teaching about the role of the principalities and powers and how they corrupt creation. It makes sense to the way I look at the world. 
But the, the main reason I believe in the reality of Satan and the principalities and powers and angels and demons, the main reason is not because it solves a philosophical problem, but because I believe in Jesus. I've got good reasons, philosophical reasons, uh, historical reasons, personal reasons for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. I've got good reasons for believing that the gospel portrait of him is, 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 is reliable. We talk about that, Paul, Eddie, and I, in our book, The Jesus Legend, if you want to go deeper with that. And so it's very clear from the New Testament that Jesus believed in the reality of Satan and principalities and powers and demons. And if he's the Son of God, I'm thinking he's probably not wrong about that. And so I, I accepted on his authority that, that, in fact, these things are real. Uh, this world is, in fact, oppressed. Now, the, the main way, reason this is important is this. If we don't take seriously this dominion of darkness teaching that Paul's giving us here, and that runs throughout the New Testament, if we forget that, ignore that, or just mythologize that, we end up looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, which a lot of folks are doing these days. Uh, the world looks like a wonderful, beautiful place, and we celebrate you know, all the good things that are around us. And God's glory is shown throughout all the creation. I'm not denying that. But if you deny the reality of the influence of the powers, you end up with an overly optimistic view of the world. How wonderful it is. Now, yes, those are there's occasional irrational acts of God that we can't explain. But other than that, the world's a wonderful place. It's a rosy place. It's a pleasant place. Let's be optimistic. Let's look on the bright side of things. I say to myself, this is a wonderful world. So we are strong. And then we end up viewing people as in overlap, overly optimistic terms. And this is, I think, going on all over the place. We're pretty good. People are pretty decent. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the inside, deep down, there's this in, in, intrinsic goodness that characterizes all people, or at least most people. Those evil terrorists, they're evil, yeah, sure. But the rest of us are pretty decent and pretty moral, and there's this internal goodness. There's been a number of studies that have, 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 have shown that Western people in particular have a fairly, in fact, a radically good opt- view of ourselves. We, we view ourselves as pretty moral. Even though a bunch of studies show that, in fact, statistically speaking, we're not. The stuff that we would do if we could not get caught and there was a good enough payoff on, on it is incredible. We're, we're intrinsically very immoral, and yet we view ourselves as very moral. And so we have this optimistic view of ourselves. Maybe we're not perfect. Maybe we need a little encouragement now and then. But we don't need to be rescued. Rescued from a dominion of darkness. Come on, we're, we're, we're pretty good. I saw one study that showed that uh, in, in America, almost 90% of the people believe they deserve to go to heaven. Which was really weird because only 84% of them were sure there was a heaven. But there you go. <laughs> and so we, we don't like to talk about sin. Sin, that nasty word. A book came, was published several years ago that said, whatever happened to sin? And, and it just kind of shows how that idea of sin has been fading in our culture, the vocabulary. We don't talk that way in the broader culture, and increasingly we don't talk that way in the church. Over the last several decades, that word is beginning to drop out of our vocabulary. It seems so nasty and harsh. Sin. We like to talk about dysfunction, disorder. Oh, he's got disorder. Occasional lapses of judgment. Uh, maybe bad parenting, bad social influences, uh, you know, led in the wrong direction. We'll talk about occasional mishaps and lapses of judgment and things like that, but we don't want to talk about sin. It's, it's just too nasty because we're intrinsically good, right? We're, 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 there's a goodness inside all of us. Uh, I'm okay, and you're okay, and we're all okay, and, and Oprah Winfrey says that we're okay, and if Oprah said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Yeah. <laughs> but see, that is not a biblical view of our situation. 
the news is rather bad. Uh, from a biblical point of view, it's true that every human being has intrinsic worth. In fact, every human being has intrinsic, unsurpassable worth. Every human being, including the terrorists, have unsurpassable worth because Jesus died for every human being, and Jesus is God's vote about what the worth of human beings are. He couldn't have paid a bigger price, which means we have unsurpassable worth. That is true, yes. We have unsurpassable worth, but we're not intrinsically good. Uh, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus went so far as to say that there's none good, not even one, except for God. And Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm thinking that, therefore, that is a true statement. None are intrinsically good. You read this all over the place throughout the New Testament. There's Romans 3, there's none that seek after righteousness. There's none that do good. There's none that thirst after God. I don't mean to sound like some kind of ranting, Bible-pounding fundamentalist. It'd be odd to be accused of that, but... But, but see, the reality is this. This is just Bible teaching. The Bible portrays the human race as being in a very sorry, in very sorry shape. We are a lost race of people. We are a depraved race of people. We are diseased. We are afflicted. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that we are not just wounded in our sins. We're dead in our sins. And we're in bondage to the principalities and powers headed up by Satan. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions, not just wounded, not just sick, not just slightly ill, not even just on life support. You were dead. Everybody say dead. dead. That's who we are apart from Christ. We're dead in our transgressions and sin, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Look at this. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's who we follow. We didn't maybe know that, but that's who we were following. He's talking about Satan. That's the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Oh, that's so harsh. It's not, it doesn't fit our optimistic worldview. It doesn't seem very nice. But there it is right there in the Bible. We're a screwed up race. We're in bondage. We're dead in our sins. And the fact that we think we're so good is just further evidence of how, far, how lost we are. We're diseased. That's why the, 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 the verse we read here says that the Father qualified us to inherit the kingdom. The Father qualified us. Now that word, the word that's used there, hikarao, means to make competent or capable. And the Father makes us competent, makes us capable to inherit the kingdom. But the Father had to do it. Why did the Father have to do it? Because we are dead in sin and we are slaves. We can't qualify ourselves. We can't make ourselves capable. We can't make ourselves competent to inherit, inherit the kingdom. We're dead. In fact, we, 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 can't, we can't even give ourselves faith. We can't give ourselves the will to obey God. Left to our own devices, we're dead. We can't crank out of our own, of our own goodness, uh, believing in God and serving God. We would never on our own uh, have faith in Jesus Christ or even want to have faith in Jesus Christ or see the need for Jesus Christ. We can't do that on our own. It's only because of God's grace working in our life that we're empowered and qualified and capable of believing in Jesus and surrendering our life to Jesus. It's only because of God's grace working on our minds that we can see any truth. It's only because of God's grace that, that we, we can be empowered to, uh, to be his disciples and to submit our lives to him. We would not do that on our own. If God doesn't open up a heart and if God doesn't open up a mind, that mind stays dark and that heart stays closed. But it's open, it's all by God's grace. The bad news is that we are an oppressed and lost people far in far worse condition than we would, by our own reasoning, ever realize. Why? But that's just further evidence of how far gone we are. Now, I want to be clear here. There are some folks who understand correctly that we are in bondage and we are dead, and so we can't just choose God on our own. 
they realize that. But then they go to this other extreme, and they reason like this. Well, then, if we can't choose God on our own, then, and, and, if, and some people end up choosing God, it must be because God chose them. And since not everyone believes, some believe and some don't, it must mean that God chooses some, but not others. And then you come up with this grisly conclusion that, that God predestines some to go to heaven and predestines others to go to hell. See, there's something wrong with that line of reasoning. One, one evidence of it is that it just conflicts with so much New Testament teaching. The Bible tells us, 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The Bible tells us, 1 Peter 3, 9, that God's not willing that any should perish, but wants everybody to come to repentance. God is in love with everybody, so he's not out there picking and choosing people. There's something wrong with that line of reasoning. Here's the thing. It's one thing to say that I can't believe without God empowering me. That's true. I, no one can believe God without, unless the Spirit of God is working in their heart. Paul says in 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that, that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't genuinely confess him as Lord of your life unless the Spirit is working there. So that's true. We can't do it without God. But it's one thing to say that, and a very different thing to say that if God is empowering us, we have to believe that's what some folks call irresistible grace. If God chooses you, you can't resist him. He irresistibly changes your heart. And that's what leads to the conclusion that, well, he irresistibly changed these people, but he doesn't these people. He's a God who picks and choose, chooses. Here's, here, here, here's what I, I think. We can't believe God on our own. Only God's spirit can empower us to have faith. But I think God's doing, working to do that everywhere. Uh, he's a God who loves everybody. I think God chooses everybody. He's just that not everybody chooses God. God's at work in the hearts to enlighten and to, and, and to open up our minds and hearts. But there's a role we play in terms of whether we're going to yield or not. God empowers us, but doesn't coerce us. He enables us to believe, but he leaves intact our ability to suppress the Spirit. That's why you find throughout the New Testament, in fact, throughout the Bible, people suppressing the Spirit of God, grieving the Spirit of God, quenching the Spirit of God. We have the capacity to do that. But we can also yield. And so it's true that if you believe, it's all because of God's grace. All because of God's grace working in your life. But it's not the case that if you don't believe, it's because God's ignoring you. No, you're, you're squelching the spirit there. You see how that goes? God is at work at all, in, in all people, trying to bring them in. Our job is to yield. He empowers us to yield. We, and we wouldn't even do that if it wasn't for the grace of God. But the bad news is that apart from Christ, this world is oppressed. The, the, this world is part of the dominion of darkness. And people are sinners and are in bondage to the powers of darkness. That's the bad news. Does anyone want some good news or should I quit right now? <laughs> All right, let's, let's go on to part two. The good news! And it's very good. And bear in mind the bad news because the good news is good in contrast to the bad news. The good news, and we read about it here in this verse, is that God has in fact rescued us. And God has in fact brought us. All, all who submit, amen, amen, amen. Yes. When God breaks through and, and empowers us and we yield to the Spirit and therefore have faith in Jesus Christ, it says he brought us out of the realm of darkness and brought us into, praise God, the kingdom of his dear Son. Now that, that phrase, brought us, it's an interesting one. In Greek, it's, it's methastani. And it was a word that was used. It, it literally means to transfer, to relocate, to transport. It was a word that was used sometimes of the Romans. When, 
uh, if they saw a, a people group that was opposed to any kind of trouble to them, they would divide the, the, the group. It was, they had a kind of a divide-and-conquer strategy. So they'd go into a population sometime, and for military and political purposes, sometimes they'd just grab some people and put them over in a different location, a different part of the, the, the Roman Empire. Methostami, they, he'd, they'd relocate them. This, Paul is saying, is something like what God does with us. We get relocated. We get transferred. We were over in this domain of darkness. And he came and methostamy. He transported us into a different land. He relocated us. Our address has changed. And folks, this is very, very, very good news. In some kind of metaphysical way, we don't have to understand the details of it, but in a metaphysical way, God has taken us from one domain and transplanted us into an entirely different domain. We have a different address. We were over here, if you will, in, in, in 666 Dominion of Darkness Lane. And he took us and he put us over here into 777 Kingdom of Heaven Lane. And it goes on forever and ever. Amen. It's very good news. Your address has changed. Think about it. Think about it. We were over here under the realm of darkness, this place where God's wrath is hanging, all right? And he came and he rescued us and met the He relocated us over into this kingdom where now it's nothing but the grace of God and the beauty of God hovering over this land. Our address has changed and it's very, very good news. We're over here in the land of bondage, but he took us over here in the land of freedom. Our address has changed. It's very, very good news. We're over here in the land of condemnation, but now he's transported us, Mephistami, and, and it put us into the kingdom of, of, of his grace and, and forgiveness. Praise God, our address has changed. We're over here in the land of fear, but now we're over here in the land of confidence. We're over here in the land of the lost, but now we're over here in the land of, of the found. We've come home, praise God. We're over here in the kingdom of Satan, but he's brought us over here in the kingdom of his dear son. It's good news. It's the best news you could possibly imagine. Our address has changed. We've been brought out of darkness. Praise God. Yes. I, I, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Our address has changed. Praise God. In fact, in fact, it's even a little better than that. Um, because other passages tell us, Paul tells us, that it's not that it's just, just that we were brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. But we were actually brought into the beloved son. That's why the New Testament says a couple dozen times that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. In a very real sense, we're, we're incorporated into Christ Jesus. His kingdom is sort of inside himself. We were brought over from this realm, and now we're placed in the Son of the Beloved. We're incorporated into Him. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we are loved in the Beloved. We're loved in the Beloved. Which means that as the Father loves the Son, He loves us because we are in the Son. We're loved with the very same love that the Father has for the Son. The eternal love, the perfect love, the unsurpassable love, the intense, passionate love of the triune God that characterizes God throughout eternity. All that is turned towards you. Right here, this moment, when you are in the Son. It means that we're transported into the very heart of the triune God. We participate in the life of the triune God. We are dancing with God. We're sharing in the love of the triune God. That's our new address. That's our new home, being rescued from the realm of darkness, put into the dance of the triune God. And that, all that is true right now. Okay, This isn't like, oh, I can't wait till I die and then I'll have that. No, it's right now. Paul's talking in the past tense here. This is what's already happened to us. We were over here. We believe in God. Now we're over here. It's done. It's a done deal. The address has changed right here, right now. It doesn't always feel like that, I know, because this world is still oppressed and our brains are half oppressed and all that other stuff. But we've got to know what is true, apart from how we feel, apart from our experience. And what is true is that our address has changed. 
We're in a new land, a new territory. We are in the sun. Good news. Address has changed. This is why, by the way, incidentally, this is why uh, the Bible calls us citizens of heaven. Do you know that? Several times in the New Testament, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Already, right here, right now, we're citizens. We've got a new citizenship. Well, we don't just visit there. We don't have traveling visas, temporary visas. We've got, we're card-carrying citizens of the kingdom of God. We've been naturalized into the kingdom of God. We've been qualified in the kingdom of God. We've got a capacity for this. We're competent in this. He's given that to us. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Which means that, okay, I'm going to go, go here a little bit. Uh, just remember that. Always remember that that's your true citizenship. We are ambassadors here. We're traveling through here. We've got a mission here. But this here right now is not our true country. And podcasters, podrishners, wherever you are, that's not your true country. If you're a believer, you're first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. Amen. Yes. I know in an official way you're a citizen of, of, of America or Australia or whatever, officially, but, but spiritually speaking, you're a citizen of, of the kingdom of God, and you're here on assignment. And just remember that. Just remember that, and, and don't get too bothered by all the stuff that the citizens of the world get bothered by. I mean, already you're seeing the rhetoric and the attitudes notching up, and it's getting hot as we're going into the 2012 election, and, and it's not even 2012. We're going to, have to put up with this for another year and a half. Ooh. And, and, but it, it, people are saying, it's true, that they've never seen it this hateful, this, this divisive. In Washington, and, and the country is just so divided, and there's such vitriolic language. You know, you watch the cable news. It's getting, no longer are we saying, oh, I disagree with you. Often they're saying, you're evil. You don't really care. You're, and, and it's just getting nasty. Don't, the citizens of the world are going to get all caught up in that, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and you're here on assignment. Don't let it bother you too much, and don't get sucked into it, for Christ's sake. Don't get sucked into it. Don't get sucked into it. No, it's, um, uh, you know, it's like you, you wouldn't get, you're not probably bothered if you're a U.S. citizen. You don't get like all worried and lose sleep over what's ha- the politics of Australia, because that's not your country. Well, in a real sense, this isn't your country either. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And maybe then you see, you know, you're worried about the, the country going down the wrong direction and falling apart, and maybe it is. And, and maybe you're concerned and worried and angry because you think the wrong person is getting into office, and, and, and maybe you're right. You know, everyone's right, right? Right? Okay, you're right. But see, now that's fine. That's fine. It is what it is, and, and do what you want to do about that. But see, here's the thing. Remember that your, your real president is Jesus Christ. And he's your only real president. The real Lord is Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can trust him. He's been around the block a couple of times. All right? Uh, he's not a novice. Uh, he's, he's, he's been from everlasting to everlasting. And he's seen a lot of empires rise and fall. I think he can handle the rise and fall of this one. He's seen the rise and fall of the Persian Empire. The, he was there when Rome rose. And he was there when Rome fell, when the Greeks rose and the Greeks fell. He was there when the Chinese Empire rose and the Chinese Empire fell. And now it's kind of starting to rise what I do? What I, oh, there it is. I hit some. All right. So he's, he, he's been around the block a couple of times. You can trust him. Just relax a little bit. Do what you feel called to do, but, but, but know that, that, that your confidence and your hope is in Jesus Christ and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Don't get sucked into the divisive, hateful stuff that's going on here. Uh, here's what we should be concerned with. And really, it's the only thing we'll be concerned with. And, and then I, I, I'll take some questions. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, whatever happens... 
What, I like that phrase. Whatever happens. The country rises or the country falls. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, you know, the economy improves or the economy tanks even more. Whatever. Your health improves, your health goes down. Whatever. Uh, you know, you, you think the right people are in office or you think the wrong people are in office. Whatever. Whatever happens. Whatever happens as citizens of heaven, that's your true citizenship, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yes. We've looked at that word worthy a couple times in our Good Will, God's Will Hunting uh, series. The word is axios. It doesn't mean that we're trying to make ourselves deserving of it. It doesn't mean we're trying to pay back the sacrifice of Calvary, which you can never do and you're not supposed to because it's a gift. It's a gift. You don't have to pay it back. No, axios. We get the word axiom from it or axiomatic. It just means what follows from something else. So in logic, we have this thing where you have the premise and then it's axiomatic that if these premises are true, then the conclusion is true. It follows ax- axiomatically. It's an axiom. So also, what this word means is this. Live in a way where your actions follow from the truth of who you are. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Live in a way that reflects the values of the kingdom of heaven. Live in a way that, that, that reflects the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. Live in a way that displays the character of the kingdom of heaven. This is our job. This is how we're ambassadors. To put on display, individually and collectively, to put on display a different kind of a country, a different kind of a land, a different kind of a Lord, a different kind of a president, a different kind of atmosphere, the the atmosphere of the new place where we're living. In a world that still remains dark, our job is to manifest light. And we do it by how we live and how we treat others and how we forgive and, 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 and in every area of our life, how we spend our money, manifest that. You see, we've been brought out of darkness into light. That's a done deal, but... Not all the darkness has been brought out of us. It's like with Israel, they came out of Egypt, but man, it took them a long time before they stopped thinking like it's the slaves of Egypt. We've got to get the, the Egypt mindset out of our, our brains. And so what's true is that you've been brought out of the, you're no longer under the authority of Satan or the powers. You are no longer under their authority. So start thinking that way and start speaking that way and start living that way to manifest that truth. You've been brought from a land of bondage into a land of freedom. Start living that way, thinking that way, speaking that way, manifesting that truth. You've been brought from a land of fear into a land of fearlessness. This is who you really are. So think that way and speak that way and live that way and manifest that truth. Everything that's true about this new land and just positioning of the old land, we're to think, we're to speak, we're to live. And that really is our lifelong task of discipleship. Just put on display the beauty of the land in which you are a true citizen. The, heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. Praise God, praise God. Let's take a couple questions. What do we got? Yes, back there. Speak it out. This is Vanessa, by the way. Say hi, Vanessa. Yeah, she's a, she's a theology student. So this, this will probably be really good. Our expectations are really high. Don't be nervous. <laughs> okay, very good. Okay, so the, the question is, if, uh, since we still have the power, uh, the ability uh, to resist God, and that's obviously true, otherwise our lives would right now be perfectly aligned with, with, with God's will. We, we still resist God. Vanessa was asking, well then, can you resist God to the point where you go back to your old location? Right, so you, 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 you've been rescued, brought into the kingdom of light. Can we say, yeah, no thanks, and go back to the, the, the darkness? Here's the thing, is that um, first I would encourage folks to not try to find out in their own life whether that's the case. <laughs> uh, this is a theoretical answer here, but, but you know, I, the most important thing is, is don't make that question relevant. A second thing I, I would uh, point out, and I bring, come back to this all the time, is that, that um, uh, it's, the, the, 
you know, this relocation thing, it has a real ontological truth. Okay, it really happens. But we're also talking in terms of metaphors. And every metaphor communicates some things and not others. And one of the problems that, that has arisen, why this eternal security question, because that's kind of what you're asking, why that has become so important is because Western folks tend to construe almost everything in theology and everything about our relationship with God in legal terms. As though God was the judge and we're the defendant and Jesus is our lawyer. <clears throat> and and, and see, then the whole thing comes, you know, what do I have to do to get acquitted? And what do I have to do to stay acquitted? And then people debate, well, can you lose your acquittal by doing this sin or that sin or, or whatever? Uh, I think that's, that's not, that analogy has some applications in some instances, but the more, the more fundamental analogy in Scripture is not a court of law, but a marriage. And in, in, and in a marriage, you ask a whole different set of questions than you ask in a court of law. You don't ask, how much can I get away with uh, before you'll divorce me? At least you shouldn't be. If you are, you're a terrible spouse. <laughs> and probably they're going to leave you before too long. No, in, in a marriage, you want to be getting closer and closer and closer and not saying, how much can I get away with before you'll divorce me? Because it's not a legal question, it's a relational question. So also, this is the kingdom of the son, the son whom God loves. And it's all predicated on a relationship with the Son. That's, that's what brings us into this kingdom. The reign of the Son is a relationship with the Son. And uh, as in any relationship, you can, you can foster that or you can squelch that. And, um, uh, you know, the Bible has a lot of warnings about what happens to people who enter into this relationship but then go back to their sin. Second uh, Peter talks about the dog that returns to its vomit. And the latter state is worse than the first. And those verses must mean something. And so my, you know, my response is, you know, we could debate on a theological level whether it's possible if you're truly saved. And if you lose your salvation, does that mean you never really had it? And, you know, it gets in that verbal stuff. My encouragement would be just this. I know it's possible to get a heart that's so hard that you lose the relationship that you had. I know that. And don't go there. Now, how God views you in terms of this analogy, I don't know. But you can squelch uh, the relationship with God. You, in fact, the more we do anything, the better we get at it. And so when we yield to God, we get better at yielding to God. And when we resist God, we get better at resisting Him. The first time, maybe it's very, very hard, and there's all this conviction that comes on us. But then the second time, it's not so bad. And the tenth time, it's still less. And by the 43rd time, you don't have any conviction at all. And that's a scary spot to be in. So... So be pursuing the Lord. We need to always be cultivating it. In fact, we, it's not enough just to coast. There's no such thing as coasting. If, you're, if we're not growing, we're probably going backwards. And that's, that's always inching towards that other land. Thanks for asking that, that question. I appreciate it. Uh, other questions that we have here? Oh, beautiful. I mean, it's not beautiful that we have this question, but it is a, a, a great question. So the question is this. Um, this lady was saying that uh, uh, she's wondering how you cannot blame God for certain kinds of violence um, when God seems to have set up the situation in a certain way. In this case, she's very concerned about violence against women. And God is the one who gave, at least statistically speaking, men more strength than women. So isn't he then to blame? Uh, to, uh, to, yeah, he's, he set it up that way. Okay, good, good question. Here's the thing. Um, physical strength, having an edge on physical strength would never be an issue if we weren't in ourselves in rebellion against God. 
any more than, than maybe being better at poetry than another person or being a little bit sharper on math than another person or being able to speak better than another person or ride a bicycle better than another person or running faster than another person. Those would be just differences that would, would, would not have any kind of judgment on it or, or any evil in it at all were it not for the fact that we as a race have rebelled against God. It's only because we're alienated from God that we start to look for ways that we can have an advantage over another. And so people can be evil because they can outsmart others. Or you can be evil because, you know, you're just more crafty and sinister. Or you can be evil because you're stronger than another. And, and so everything, see, any kind of difference, there'd be a boring world if we were all identical. Uh, in any respect, whether it's physical strength or whatever. The diversity is a beautiful thing. It shows the, the creativity of God. But it's when we fall and then put ourselves in bondage to the principalities and powers that they, we put ourselves in a position where they can begin to move our characters in directions that look more like them than in the image of God. It's really interesting, but uh, in the Genesis narrative, uh, you know, you have, when, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, you have uh, God showing up. And he, at one point he says, to Genesis 3.16, he says, because of this, uh, Eve, your desire will be towards the man, but he shall rule over you. And that's a verse that has been incredibly misused, sometimes in abusive ways. Uh, because it's mainly been men doing the interpreting, and many of these men were in monasteries. All the people didn't, who did theology were in monasteries. And I'm thinking that most of them didn't have the gift of celibacy. And so they, you have... I'm trying to really be delicate here. You have... Frustrated men locked up in monasteries doing the theologizing as they read the Bible. What's on their mind? <laughs> and so, and one of the ways that they try to resist temptation is by demonizing, you know, the, tempt, the tempter. All those women, they're always trying to tempt us. And so there's some hostility there. And you find this throughout church history, this misogyny. And so when they read this verse, what they read was this. Oh, okay, this is God's design. The woman's going to desire the man. Obviously, that means sexually. So she's just going to be, oh, I want you. And, but the man's going to rule. The man's going to rule the woman. And uh, that's been used as sort of a prescription for marriage. Now, you know, this is God's design. The man's the head, he's the boss. Your desire is to serve him and to have sex with him and all these other things that the monks in the 13th century told us. But see, here's the thing. The verse in Genesis 3.16 is in the, it's in the indicative, not the imperative. Indicative describes what is. An imperative says what ought to be. Indicative says what is. Well, this is in the indicative voice, which means God isn't saying, this is what I want. God's saying, because of the fall, this is what's going to be. And actually, the word seek there is used in the next chapter uh, uh, of, of sin seeking uh, uh, Cain. Uh, and it, it has the connotation of manipulation. And the word that's used for rule in, in uh, uh, Genesis 3.16 has the connotation of to tyrannize. And so what God is saying here is this. Because of this uh, fall, this rebellion... This beautiful arrangement that God had set up. And you'll see more, a closer, a better glimpse of that beautiful arrangement in chapter 1. Where it says, God made them male and female. In the image of God, he made them. That's one of the ways we reflect the Trinity. You don't have any, any hostility in, in the Trinity. I uh, know they get along wonderful, even though there's three different persons there. But, but Adam and Eve were to reflect that, that unity and oneness, one fleshness. It was a beautiful arrangement. Uh, but now, because of this fall, God's saying, you're taking this masterpiece and you're turning it into a warfare. It'll be a, it'll be a power struggle. She's going to be trying to manipulate you, and you're going to be trying to manipulate her, and because you're physically stronger, you're going to tend to win. Yay, you. 
And sadly, any cursory look at marriage throughout history reflects that verse is all too true. Men tyrannize, using their physical strength, not in godly ways, but in, in ungodly ways to keep, keep the, the woman in her, her place. In fact, you find this throughout the, the Genesis narrative. This, as soon as we fall, there's this, this inclination to try to control. And so as soon as we fall, we have this power struggle in marriage. And then Cain tries to lord over Abel by killing him. We want to be lord. And so we're trying to, everybody wants to rule the world. Everyone, and then we use whatever advantage we've got over others to try to get an upper hand on things. It's all because of the fall. It's all because of... Uh, when we come into Christ, our job is to start to recover His original design for creation. His original design for marriage, which is, Paul shows us in Ephesians 5, to come under one another and support one another and be a helper to one another. By the way, uh, some, the, the monks in the 13th century and many today, unfortunately, uh, the verse that says that Eve was created to be his helpmate or his helper, they say, oh, look, it, she's supposed to be the maid, the helper. The thing is, most often that verb is used of God. God is our helper. And I don't think God wants to be our maid. No, it's a support. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a privileged thing, an esteemed thing. So our job, to bring it back to the original thing, is to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the world does it this way, power struggles, trying to get the upper hand, who gets to be boss. The world tries to compete and use whatever advantage you've got, whether it's physical strength or creativity or whatever, to try to get as much rule as you can. But in the kingdom, our job is to manifest an entirely different way of doing life. An entirely different kingdom. Uh, the land that we are the true citizens of. So I encourage us to remember that uh, the bad news, uh, in order to remember the good news, the bad news is that this world continues to be strongly oppressed by demonic forces. This world tends to be a fallen place, and we are left to our own devices, not intrinsically good. Uh, but God is at work in all people to bring us back, to woo us back. And when we surrender to him, then we're in this new place. Uh, the, the land of the kingdom of God. And we're there right now. And I encourage us to, to make it a daily task to bring all of our thoughts and all of our feelings and all of our attitudes and all of our actions into line with that kingdom. Who you are as, by virtue of being a citizen of the kingdom of God and to put the kingdom of God on display in that way. From Allison. Thank you, Allison. We see God using natural disasters in the Old Testament for holy purposes. Why should we attribute all of them to evil powers now? Very good. Very good. Excellent. I'm writing a book on this. Maybe I should just wait to read the book. <laughs> I, I'll just say two things. That, that um, On the one hand, it's always, always important to remember that uh, to read everything in the Old Testament from the perspective of the New. And that the, the, the perspective that they have, it's all inspired but the perspective they have isn't the ultimate perspective. They, they, they had limited revelation there. And the ultimate perspective of who God is and what's going on in this world is given to us through Christ. So we need to sometimes look back on that, and, and that, that changes the way we read uh, some of these accounts. Second thing I, I'd say, I, I might say, I'm saying three things. Second thing I'd say is that God is, can, can use natural disasters uh, if he so chooses. Um, but remember that... that, uh, that that was all part of an old covenant. I mean, that was their arrangement there. God was doing some things, and I'll talk about that in the book as well. For certain purposes, he uses those things uh, to you know, enforce the old covenant. It was a system of immediate rewards and punishments if they obeyed or disobeyed and things of that sort. Uh, and and, and so, so he can do that. But we have no reason to think that he does that in the New Testament. And, and that's got to be our ultimate perspective. 
Um, the final thing I'll say is, is that God, as the Lord of creation, takes responsibility for everything that happens. But as we read the whole thing in the light of Christ, it's very clear that in taking responsibility for it all, and we see that on the cross, uh, it doesn't mean he's causing it all. And what we learn in the New Testament is that, that uh, you know, when, when consistently when Jesus came against diseases, for example, and afflictions, all things that would be part of the natural creation, natural disasters on a personal level, consistently they diagnosed that as being demonically caused and brought about through, through uh, demonic forces. And there's suggestions about this as well um, uh, throughout the New Testament, especially in, in the book of Revelation. So always remember the perspective that we take on these things has got to be rooted in Christ. And, uh, and in the New Testament. And there we find that this world is oppressed by demonic forces, and that is ultimately why the world is screwed up. Excellent question, Allison. What else? From Mr. Anonymous. If I have a new address in Jesus, then why does it still feel like evil is camping out in my backyard, eating my food, and playing the darn rock music until 3 a.m.? <laughs> Thank you, Anonymous. Well, see, this is, uh, this is what sometimes called the already not yet tension of the, that, that you find throughout the New Testament. It's already true. Paul's speaking factually here that in light of Christ, when we put our trust in Christ, it's already true that we've been brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But what's not yet true is that the world and our lives completely conforms to that, obviously. And so, as I said a moment ago, we've come out of darkness, but that doesn't mean that the darkness has all come out of us. And we've come out of darkness, but that doesn't mean that our environment has come out of darkness. We live in a, in a spiritually fluted world. This is the warfare that we're involved in. This is why Paul says we still have to struggle against the principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual forces of evil in, 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 in the heavenly realms. Uh, there's always this ongoing battle. And so it does often feel like you're still in the land of darkness, because your environment is. And to a certain degree, your brain still is, and your heart still is, and the whole job of discipleship is to take what is true about us in Christ and get it into the brain and then get it into our speech and then get it into our character and then get it into our actions. And through that means we begin to now affect the dark realm that we're a part of and we bring light. We're pushing back the kingdom of darkness because we're manifesting the kingdom of light. Uh, and so I encourage you, Mr. Anonymous, to acknowledge that you're surrounded by this darkness, but, but, but always remember who you truly are and where your citizenship truly is. And, and increasingly put on display that kingdom, and you might find that some of that darkness around you uh, begins to leave, and you go to bed at 1 a.m. instead of 3 a.m. All right. And rock music isn't necessarily of the devil. It depends what kind you're listening to. If it's Tower of Power, it's of God. If it's, you know, Metallica, maybe not so much. All right. Uh, I've got time for maybe one or two more. From Ryan, how might God empower those who have never heard of Jesus? Very good. Excellent. I, I really appreciate these, these questions. This is my favorite part of the, the message because it's, you know, it, it, it has to keep me on my toes. It keeps me thinking. Um, here, here's the thing. Uh, here's how I put this together. Is, is that I, I, I know that Jesus died for all and that God loves all. Paul tells us, and we find this in other places as well, in Acts 17, that God is at work at all times and all places. The dividing up of the nations and all that. He's involved in all of that. And his involvement is so, so that, Paul says, Acts 17, to get people to grope for him or, or seek for him, because God has to do that. We don't seek for God unless he's involved. To get God to seek for him and possibly find him, Paul says. Though, in fact, he's not far from any of us. Uh, and, and, and so as I look at that, I, 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 say, I assess it this way. 
Uh, I know God is at work in, in the constraints of the culture and working around all the other stuff that's part of the culture to bring about as much truth as possible, as much light as possible, because God loves them. Uh, and I, as I look at the different cultures and even the different religions and all that, when I see things that look like Christ, I, re- I have a reason to assume that that was because Christ was working there. Because they wouldn't have had that if Christ wasn't working there. And when I see stuff that doesn't look like Christ, I say, well, then something else is working there. Uh, to that degree, they were suppressing the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and that's not of God. So I look at not only Scripture through the lens of Christ, I look at everything through the lens of Christ, and I encourage us to do that. Assess it. That's our criteria for what is of God and what's not of God. And so you look around, and I, I don't need to pretend like... I mean, some folks have this idea that Christianity has all the truth and there's no truth found anywhere else. Uh, I, I submit to you that, that we've, got, we've got the most important truth, and that's the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world, the most important truth. But that doesn't mean that God has now quarantined us and, and consigned everybody else to nothing but sin and failure and untruth. No, no there's, there, there's, there's Christ-likeness over there. And that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the grace of God working in their life. At least that's my perspective. Time for one more. From another anonymous, taking back America for God seems like a positive thing. Why shouldn't we publicly support it? Nice. Um, It's it's a very good question. Here's the thing, and I didn't mention this, but you're seeing this already. Uh, There is now a widespread crescendoing movement, which happens around every election, but this one seems particularly hostile. We're seeing a, a, a lot of Christians begin to take up that slogan again, and they're having rallies and all of that. And they're sincere, wonderful people, but I think they're being played by the system. And they're, they're, they're looping in gospel stuff with this divisive politics stuff. Uh, look, taking back America for God, the first question I ask, and you've heard me say this before if you've been around for any length of time, I'm wondering when, where those good old days were. <laughs> you know, taking back America for God, presuppose that one time we were for God. Was that the good old days when we had sl- African slavery and slaughtered Native Americans? The wonderful days when... We- when did this nation ever look Christ-like? <laughs> Honestly, I, 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 I just... I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a mythic thing. Now, it's always good to be praying for the nation. I'm for that, praying for the nation and, 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 and asking God to you know, come and heal the nation and, and, and to, uh, you know, bring the gospel truth to the nation and all of that. But the way that he's commissioned us to do this is the Philippians 127 way. The way we make an impact is not because we have superior opinions about what Caesar should do. It's because we've got the life of Christ flowing through us and we live as citizens of a different country which invites others into this different country and that's the best thing we could possibly do for this country. That came out just right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, so uh, the, the, the trouble is, pray for the nation, but, but when, when, when we have Christian leaders you know, hold these rallies, uh, the trouble is that they, they are so confident that this candidate and this policy is what it means to bring God in this country. And I submit to you that it, it has nothing to do with that. It's about how we manifest a different kingdom, a different king, a different savior, and ultimately a different president. Uh, he's our one Lord and one master. Our job is to be ambassadors to put that kingdom on display. Amen. Is it possible to lose my, way, my new address and get sent back to the darkness? Oh, really good. Okay, look it. Um, here's the thing. Like, every analogy has its applications and its limitations. And it, what, 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 what I'm mainly, con- thank you for that question, by the way, but what, I, what I'm really concerned with is this. And I've said this a number of times. I think it's just so foundational. Everything matters on how we frame that question. 
We tend to, in the Western world, thanks to a long ecclesial tradition, a church tradition, we tend to frame everything in a court of law context where God's the judge and we're the defendant and Jesus is our lawyer. And, and so everything is, t- is viewed in a, in a legal framework. And so the question becomes, okay, what, uh, I, what does it take? I, I've been acquitted, right? Jesus took, took my punishment. I've been acquitted. So now what are the terms of my acquittal? Um, how can I lose my acquittal? How do I, you know, can I give you a back there? And we get all these theoretical questions and that the legal framework leads people to think, uh, to act in a way where you want to see how, how close to the legal rule can you get before you, before you lose it. You know, when, when exactly is fornication? We all want to know. And it's like, well, you know, how close can I get? But the main way that the Bible frames our relationship with God is relational. This is the kingdom of the sun, right? This isn't just a Roman transportation. There's a relationship that's involved in this. And, and it's, it's all about being married to Jesus Christ. That's the main analogy that's used in the Bible. This marriage context. And in that, if you view your relationship with God as a marriage, which is what it is, you ask an entirely different set of questions. You don't ask shouldn't ask the question to your spouse, hey, honey, exactly how far to the edge can I get before you're going to divorce me? If I cheat on you once, are you going to divorce me? How about twice? Uh, how about if I just start flirting with somebody, you're going to divorce me? Are you going to divorce me if I stay out one night? How about two nights? What about three nights? How about... There's this negotiation. That is really a sucky marriage if that's where you're at, all right? Never been, the, the, the goal of a marriage should be to say, how close, to, how, how, how close can we get? How, how can we be more committed? How can we be more manifesting one flesh? You get an entirely different set of questions. So on this thing, here's the thing. Uh, I know with, 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 with my marriage, and I think this is reflected kind of in the Bible, that I, I, I can grow cold to my wife. I've seen people grow cold to their spouse. It doesn't happen because of one imperfection or five imperfections or whatever. It's, a, it's not that kind of a thing. You broke a rule. There, no, it's not like that. But if I consistently ignore and, and don't attend to the relationship, it can grow cold. It can die. It's not a legal thing. It's just a reality thing. And, uh, and then the Bible has a bunch of warnings about what happens to people when you had your faith and then you, you gave up on it. You went back to 2 Peter, I think it is. It says uh, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. The latter state is worse than the first. So there's these, all these warnings, and they got to mean something, right? they got to apply to something. So in that sense, I say, yes, it's possible for us to choose to go back to the land of darkness. But it's not a legal thing. No, it's a relational thing. Most importantly, I'd say this. Cultivate the kind of relationship with Jesus Christ where that is no longer a concern. Uh, where we don't, I, I would ne- it would never occur to me right now to even ever think about worrying about that. That's a legal question, and, and, and live in a way where that becomes obsolete and superfluous. Okay, got time for another one or two. Science shows natural causes for disasters and psychiatric disorders. Is the kingdom of darkness different than these natural causes? Excellent. See, I, I love, you guys are smart. I, I, I love this. This is, see, I, this is like, it's, it, it makes it exciting for me. I never know what's going to come. And then it keeps me on my toes. So now I've got to answer the question. <laughs> no, see, here's the thing. I, I, I believe from the perspective of the world that we're given in the New Testament, and there's hints of this in the Old Testament. But you always got to remember that the Old Testament has a penultimate perspective. It's not the ultimate perspective. The ultimate perspective is given us in Christ. And so we have to kind of reinterpret some of that stuff. But from the New Testament, I, I conclude that this world is in bondage to the principalities and powers. Um, that doesn't mean, I, I wouldn't ever say that that means that there's a demon behind every hurricane or tornado or disease or anything like that. Now, what, what I mean by that is this that these forces have corrupted the very fabric of creation so that things don't work quite like they were supposed to work. Death, is, 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 Satan is called the Lord of death in Hebrews 2.14. 
But death is simply, really, on a strictly scientific perspective, is very natural. Everything winds down. Second law of thermodynamics. We all tend towards decay. And the older you get, the more you experience it. Let me tell you. Uh, you know, but I don't think that's the way God originally designed it. No. It, everything dies. Everything winds down. Death was introduced, at least on a human level, through, through sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve. So I think everything is corrupted. Now, that means that psychiatric disorders and earthquakes and all these other things, they can have a scientific explanation for them. They, all, they all usually do. If they don't now, we're working to find it. Uh, and that's legitimate. That's a way of fighting the curse. I think there's, there's a, a beauty in that. I think there's a godliness in this. To, to use what the brains that God gave us to try to push back and, and if possible, reverse or mitigate against the, the, the effects of the curse. Uh, but the, we, if it wasn't for the curse, if it wasn't for the oppression of the powers, we wouldn't need any of that. That's what I'm saying. Uh, if humans still had the authority that we were supposed to have in, in creation, if the world wasn't fallen, uh, then, then we wouldn't have psychiatric disorders. We wouldn't have, I don't believe, earthquakes that can kill people and storms and other things like that. It's really interesting, a little footnote here, that Jesus in, in, on the lake when the storm arose in Mark 4, he rebukes the lake, uh, the, the, the storm. And the terms that's used there are the same terms that, he, that are used when he, when he binds a demon. He, it literally means phenao, I think it is in Greek. He chokes it. And he was, it suggests that he saw there's, that is not part of God's original beautiful design. That's part of this fallen world. So, yes, I always encourage people when you're dealing with afflictions like disorders, anything like that, to shoot in two directions. Pay attention to the natural stuff. What can you do on a natural level, through science, through medication, whatever, to address this issue? But also pay attention to the possibility, at least, that there are spiritual forces behind it. And, uh, and, and pray against that. Got time for one more. I got to limit to one minute, but I'll see how I can. This, that is good news. But I don't know if it's my good news. How do I become in Christ? Wonderful. Thank you for asking that question. Very simple. You can do it right now. There's no magic. There's no, like, legal formula here. It's a relationship. And the way the relationship starts is by you saying, I do. He died on the cross as an invitation to say, here's my heart for you. Here's what I think of you. You are worth dying for. I want to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness. I want to rescue you from the domain of, of, of destruction. Will you accept this? And this isn't the judge saying, will you accept the terms of the acquittal, although there's forgiveness involved in this, but it's, it's about saying, I want to cultivate a relationship. So it starts right now. As I'm talking, you can just say, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn over the reins of my life to him. I'm going to live my life under his lordship. I'm going to accept that, that he loves me like this, despite my sin. I'm going to surrender my life over to his lordship. And you start walking in that direction. So start cultivating a prayer life. Start reading the Bible. Get involved with other Christians. Start getting involved in ministries. It's all part of being part of the body of Christ and, and being used by him. And that's how you start growing. It's a process here. That's why the Bible talks about salvation in three tenses. It's past, it has happened, but it, it's present, it's still going on, and it's future, it will be culminated in the future. It's a process. But you enter that process just by saying, I do. Submit your life to him. And commit to now walking in a certain direction. If you say, I believe in Jesus, but don't walk in a different direction, you're not, you're not entering into the relationship. Jesus isn't looking for intellectual assent. He's looking for a heart that says, I surrender to you. That's the New Testament sense of faith. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to pledge that you will begin to live faithful for him. The two go hand in hand. So you start that right here, right now. In fact, I'm going to pray for whoever asked that question and others who might be in that same situation. And uh, uh, start that relationship right here, right now. And as I do, could I ask the prayer team to come forward? And if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, in fact, you folks, 
uh, who, are, who want to become in Christ and, and, and start walking this way, I encourage you to come forward and seal that commitment with a prayer with these folks. And they can help you uh, get, get started in the, in, the, in the kingdom life. So prayer teams, would you come forward as I pray? Father, I thank you for every person who's listened to this message in this auditorium and elsewhere. And I pray, Lord God, Holy Spirit, that you'd seal it into our hearts. That we would be thankful. <laughs> we may not feel like we have anything else to be thankful for in life, but we have this. And Paul says we can give thanks about this. You have rescued us from the domain of darkness. You have freed us from the authority of the principalities and powers. You've brought us into a new land, given us a new citizenship, put us in Jesus Christ, given us a new nature. I pray, Lord God, that as we leave here, we'll do it with a commitment, intentional commitment, daily, moment-by-moment commitment, to think that way and speak that way and live that way and therefore manifest that truth. As we are ambassadors to this land, putting on display your beauty. Holy Spirit, empower us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and shine. Spread the kingdom. Yes.